What a delicious day it is. It's just perfect for a morning swim. Won't you come with me? Zed says the jungle's just full of danger. I'd feel a whole lot safer with a big, strong android like you along to protect me. Of course, I uh, haven't got a swimsuit, but I'm sure you won't mind. Time to check the guest rooms upstairs. Why bother? Everyone's still asleep. I'm the only one who's bright-eyed and bushy-tailed this morning. Come on, let's go. I have my orders. Well, if you're not coming now, I'm going alone. Junk Food Dinner 601. We've got three weird ones this week, babies. First, a sun goddess founds Japanese society in Himiko. Next, a mystic travels the world to kickstart his business in The Astrologer. Finally, two babes land on a weird planet in Slave Girls from Beyond Infinity. Welcome to Junk Food Dinner, episode 601. This is the podcast where each week we scour the internet, video stores, and cable television, searching for the most outrageous and interesting cult films. In Ohio, I am Kevin Moss, and I'm joined by my California co-host Parker Bowman in the 559 and Sean Byron in L.A. This week, we're left to our own devices and end up with three very different cult films. First, we've got Hamiku from 1974, The Astrologer from 1975, and Slave Girls from Beyond Infinity from 1987. But first, gentlemen, how are you doing this week? Bad. I'm doing bad, Kevin Moss. Oh, no. Did you get the Omnicrom? I wish it was that simple. You know, if, if it were that simple, there would be a, prescri- a prescribed cure, hopefully. You know, I could go to a guy, an expert, who would say, this is what you need to do, and you're going to be better. But I'm dealing with a calamity that I don't, I barely have any clues on how to solve. Okay, let's see, maybe I can help you. Well, there was a death in the family last week. Um, Sad to say that we had to uh, have a funeral last Thursday for 13-year-old Sammy, our Samsung plasma television, which died. Oh, no. Yeah, Sammy the Samsung TV, he's gone, he's no more. And, um, you know, could not have come at a worse time. Thursday is when I'm, you know, generally starting to watch movies for the weekend. Um, you know, I, I like to consider Friday as part of my weekend and um, couldn't really do that this past weekend. So I didn't get to see any movies all weekend. And then, you know, my new TV finally arrived uh, via Best Buy delivery dudes uh, on Monday. And I had to just marathon through these movies last night. And I still don't really know how I feel about this new TV versus my old plasma which I loved. Despite being 13 years old, I was not ready to give up that old TV. Well, I've never had a plasma. I've only had, you know, the what LCD, liquid crystal display. Yeah. What's the diff? Well, the plasma, you know, was, I think, eliminated because it was not very energy efficient or whatever. You know, it put off a lot of heat, sucked up a lot of power. But for my money, the way that it rendered colors and especially, you know, blacks and and darker tones was, you know, uh, perfect. Like it just it suited my eyeball perfectly. Everything looked very natural and had like a a great range of contrast. And, you know, I got this new OLED and it's like plasma just sounds cool. 
you know. Yeah, it sounds really cool. You know, it, it, it sounds, sounds like, like I've got... Yeah, in the 80s, like, you'd get, like, a toy with, like, plasma blaster. Yeah, exactly. It, it sounds like a display that would be on the bridge of the Star Trek Enterprise. You know, they got plasma displays. So did I. Now I got an OLED. What is this? And it's got a remote control that has a Disney Plus button on the remote. Come on, Sony. I mean, I have Disney Plus, but that's still kind of weird. <laughs> I was going to say, like, your TV is probably right next to your huge collection of Donald Duck toys. Like, what, what's the big deal if you got a Disney Plus button? Don't don't brand my remote control with streaming <laughs> services that might not exist in a few years. You know what I mean? I'm sure the Disney Plus yeah. will be around forever, but these things feel like yeah. they come and go. Yeah, to to that point, I have a uh, a Blu-ray remote that has a, a button that I can push if I want to access the Blockbuster streaming service. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> so yeah way to go well i'm sorry to hear of your tv woes but i'm glad to hear that you were able to squeeze these movies in on time you didn't have to watch them on your phone or anything so that's good yeah no i I would i would not want to uh suffer through slave girls beyond infinity or whatever on a on an iphone that that would be a, a travesty to the filmmakers uh you know original vision it'd be a travesty to those titties well certainly yeah it wouldn't look, you know, right-sized on that tiny little screen. Yeah. Well, how about you, Bum? And you have any TV-related tragedies? Other um, than the death of Bob Saget, which we all have been suffering through. Well, that's the only tragedy I've, I've been experiencing this week. Um, I like that guy. He directed Dirty Work. Uh, you know, yeah. Who would have thought me. out of the Dirty Work crew, Artie Lang would be the last man standing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, I mean, Chevy Chase was there, but... He well, might as well be dead. Yeah, he'll be dead soon enough, I assure you. He's dead to all of us, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no, my TV's still going still going well. I didn't have, have a plasma or anything like that. I think I got one of those LCD dealies. But um, my remote does have a voodoo button, which I like. I think I'm the only person on Earth that regularly uses voodoo, so it works out for me. Like the black magic? Yeah, you know, it's, sometimes <laughs> I just do, I do some spells, you know, I yeah, call upon want, the power. Just want to put a curse on someone, you push that button. Yeah, we've yeah. got a regular voodoo child over here. Yeah, sometimes mm-hmm. I just like to put my essence into a doll and pick on little kids, <laughs> things like that. So, Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's that. Um, yeah, no, nothing... Nothing too crazy exciting. I thought about... I like really wanted to go see a movie this weekend, but nothing was playing, so I... I was like very sad about that, like that there are like literally no movies out that I want to see. But, um, you know, I didn't. I guess I probably would have died of a contagious disease if I would have gone to a movie theater. So, yeah, that's the hell of it. Yeah, that's tough out there. And we still got a few months before the drive-ins open up out here. So, yeah, I'm uh, I'm torn because there are a few things that I want to see. I want to see that Red Rocket that's playing in theaters right now. But I'm like, yeah, oh yeah, I want to go to theater. Yeah. Too spooky. Too spooky right now. <laughs> I I did see that, but thankfully, I mean, you know, it being a small movie, I think there's it was just like me and like two other dudes in the background, like in the back of the theater. Like so I didn't catch Omicron from seeing it. You what saw Red you, Rocket? I did, yeah. What'd you oh, think? what do you think? I thought it was very good. It kinda has a weird ending, but very, very good otherwise. I like that Simon Rex. I've always been rooting for him. I'm glad he's finally finally letting everybody else know that he's a talented man. I like it a great deal. Exactly. Very nice. All right. Well, maybe uh, 
don't know. Maybe I'll get the guts to go out and go see it, or maybe I'll just wait till it's inevitably on the blockbuster streaming service and I can push the button and see <laughs> yeah. it. Well, it's almost a certainty that no one is in that theater. So, I mean, you, you'll be pretty safe, I think. That's true. The odds they're are all, good. Yeah, they're all watching the Spider-Man. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. All right, well, cool. Yeah, nothing nothing too exciting for me, like you said. Just staying indoors, trying to play it safe. Um, but yeah, you guys want to check in with uh, the folks out there in Junk Food Dinnerland in this week's segment of Junk Mail. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, all right. Uh, we only got one voicemail, but it's a, it's a good one. It comes to us all the way from across the sea. Uh, this is our old pal Robert in Sweden who has this to say. Oh, oof, da. It's uh, Robert from Sweden here. Um, as I heard you mention, uh, I am Curious Yellow. Of course, I had to shift in because uh, that movie was uh, quite a big thing here. Um, uh, although there is some full frontal and some sweet loving in it, it's uh, not really a porno in any way. It's uh, more a generally transgressive leftist provocateur kind of thing. So not so much va-va-voom, more like uh, lead actress Lena Nyman going around uh, generally questioning stuff uh, and making some sweet love. Va-va-voom? Um, <laughs> She, she got some really sexist response from the critics at the time, as you might expect, like how she had an unintelligent body, whatever the hell that means. <laughs> Turns out, uh, actually, she had a very intelligent body and mind, indeed, because uh, she went on to become one of the most loved and respected actresses over here. Um, oh. oh. Jokes on them, I guess. Anyway, the... Director of this movie, Bill Gottschöman, and Lena Nyman, they had cooperated three years before, in 64, with an even more provocative movie called uh, 491. Uh, I haven't seen it, but uh, apparently it features a male homosexual rape scene, as well as um, a scene where a lady, perhaps uh, Lena Nyman herself, gets fucked by a dog. Of course which apparently upset the Swedish-German Shepherd Club as well as got <laughs> debated in the parliament and, and ultimately led to the formation of a political party, uh, the Christian Democrats, uh, who are still in parliament today, barely. No. Anyway, this, uh, all this kind of Swedish sin can, of course, best be explored in, um, and I have mentioned this, movie in a previous call, but I don't think it got uh, played on the show. So uh, I'm, of course, talking about that masterpiece of investigative journalism, the, the Italian Svezia Inferno e Paradiso, or Sweden, wow. Heaven and Hell, from 68. Uh, perhaps, um, though... Most well known because it debuted uh, a song you might uh, recognize, uh, which goes something like. Uh, <laughs> if you can hear that. Okay, Neil Breen did nothing wrong. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you, Robert, for calling in. Coming with the facts, coming with the history. I love it. Um, yeah, I. The last week we had a caller mention 
that I Am Curious Yellow is going to be playing on Turner Classic Movies, uh, I think, later this week. I have my DVR set, uh, thanks to that caller, so I'm looking forward to watching it. I know nothing about it other than what our callers have told us so far, and now after Robert's call, I feel like I know a lot a lot more context to this, so I appreciate the insight and uh, the history um, and and the recommendation. So I will uh, I will take that all to heart, and I will look into uh, this uh, 60s Swedish uh, expose with that song in it as well. Um, but what do you guys think? Robert's coming with the uh, coming with the knowledge. Yeah, I'm blown away. You know, I, I always thought that song was a, a you know a Jim Henson creation, or you sure. know, I, I guess I just thought it was. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, just all, always associated with you know with the Muppets, and to find out it comes from some weird '60s Swedish sexploitation documentary. That's a little bit mind blowing. So um, I feel like just based on that song alone, I want to see this um, Sweden heaven and hell. Uh, and, and looking at the poster, it looks kind of fun. So adding this to my letterbox watch list. Very yeah. nice. I'm down to watch any of the Swedish stuff. Uh, the stuff I say last week, disparaging the Swedes, I uh, deeply apologize for. Uh, and I just want to point out that they're some of my favorite Europeans. And I love their pornography, especially. Nice people, great pornography. Even better <laughs> pornography, I would say. <laughs> I'm a pervert. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but if you have any insights into Swedish pornography or progressive filmmaking or anything for that matter, if you want to call, leave us a, some of your regrets, sing us a song, uh, tell us about a time that you were high on drugs. We love it all. Uh, give us a call on the Junk for Dinner voicemail line at 347-746-JUNK. That's 347-746-5865. Or send us an email at jfdpodcast at gmail.com. All right, let's get into some nerd news. From the global resources of junk food dinner worldwide, it's time for Nerd News. Uh, First piece of nerd news, we got to talk about this Foo Fighters horror movie. Sean, you want to tell us about this? Yeah, so the trailer just dropped, I think today, or or certainly recently, uh, for this new movie, Studio 666. Um, A little blurb here says, The legendary Foo Fighters are starring in Studio 666, a haunted house comedy where band members Dave Grohl, Taylor Hawkins, Nate Mandel, Pat Smear, Chris Schifflet, and Rami Jaffe fend off uh, supernatural forces to record their 10th album, in an Encino mansion steeped in gory rock and roll history, uh, blah, 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 uh, you know, uh, this is not just a creepy rock and roll house, and blah, 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 spirits are crossing into our world, says Whitney Cummings, who I guess is in this. Uh, this is directed by B.J. McDonnell, who did Hatchet 3 uh, and a bunch of Slayer videos, uh, none of which I've seen before. Uh, it will also star Will Forte, Jenna Ortega, Leslie Grossman, and Jeff Garland. Um, it's based on a story by Dave Grohl, blah, blah, blah. comes out in about a month, February 25th. So I'm kind of surprised that the trailer is dropping this close to release date, but maybe that's how they do that these days. And I'll be honest, you know, after watching this trailer... Um, I was kind of surprised at how open to this I was. Not that I'm going to, you know, rush out to see this or anything, but before I clicked on the the article, I was kind of thinking to myself, well, this is going to be just complete garbage. And I watched the trailer and I was like, you know what? Like, I could actually see this 
being the kind of thing that I would put on, you know, late at night and get a, a few chuckles out of, you know, at least Will Forte's appearance in this. And, you know, it looked like it was reasonably professionally shot, as pretty much anything is these days, I guess, that comes out to theaters. Um, and I could even see this being something that is a success. You know, I, I think the Foo Fighters are still still a popular band, right? I, I, I got no clue as to, you know, who's buying music or what's popular anymore. But um, I could see this taking off for them and maybe inspiring a, a new wave of rock and roll horror movies and and that's not such a such a bad thing because then maybe we'll finally get um you know the ending to rocktober blood that we were long promised uh, <laughs> so long ago um but did you guys see the trailer do you think this might be decent ish or am i crazy yeah i watched the trailer for this as well and like you i had the same thought like when i first thought i was like oh foo fighters horror movie like what the fuck like this is clearly gonna be garbage even though i'll I'm not a Foo Fighters hate. Like, I know a lot of people, like, hate Dave Grohl and the Foo Fighters for whatever reason. I don't know if they just hate their music or if they just feel like Dave Grohl is oversaturated because he pops up in every, like, music documentary, anything related to rock and roll. It seems like Dave Grohl is there. And so I get it. He, you know, he might have oversaturated himself. But at the same time, like, he seems like a cool guy, and he seems like he has a pretty good sense of humor about himself. And I think that's one thing that I thought kind of came through in this trailer is, like, one, like it looks like it could be fun and it looks like the guys in the band are having fun. And I think that makes a big difference. You know what I mean? It looks like this is, they're up for it. And like, they're kind of, they kind of have a sense of humor about themselves and, um, you know, it, 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 it doesn't look like, you know, this, there's not a lot, like some bands that just like wouldn't do this cause they take themselves too seriously. You know, like this would be considered beneath them, but I think Foo Fighters, you know, and like you said, I think are popular enough where they can carry a movie like this because this is being released theatrically, pr- presumably, as long as, you know, people are still going to theaters in a month from now at, at all. But, you know, uh, I guess, you know, they're they're rolling the dice and see how this goes. And maybe it, this is one of those movies that is a, a result of the pandemic. Maybe studios are willing to take chances on kind of some outsider shit like this. Not outsider, but outside the, the realm of, like, regular box office stuff for for a good time uh hillbillies in a haunted house revival only this time the hillbillies are the foo fighters mm-hmm. yeah i've always wanted uh a movie where the hillbillies were the foo fighters i guess so mm-hmm. um yeah no I, I haven't had a chance to watch the trailer yet but um i like the foo for the foo fighters i think those first two albums are bangers yeah those first two foo fighters there's nothing wrong with those albums i know nah. people are too cool for it now but you you knew you loved everlong back in the day and that speaking of everlong was a sweet video kind of had a horror vibe to it that was that was that spike jones mm-hmm. or michelle gondry where they grew really he grew the really big hand that's a sweet yeah. video yeah i was gonna mention that i i don't know who directed it but yeah that video one of the best videos ever the big me video is fucking great uh the i'll stick around video is good like i i feel like dave grohl has a good sense of what kind of visual aesthetics go well with the Foo Fighters. So mm-hmm. I, I've got faith in this. Also, the third Hatchet movie uh, was the best Hatchet movie. So that gives me a little hope for this. Uh, okay. I'm, it I'm all to- rules. All that shit rules. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm in. All right. Cool. All right. We're optimistic about the Foo Fighters horror movie. Don't prove us wrong. Don't pull a Rob Zombie on us, Dave Girl. <laughs> put all our eggs in your basket and you let us down but we'll see yeah that, right. that would be the last thing that we need this year exactly 
Uh, well, I've got some news, and that is, remember Ty West? Remember that dude? I remember when we started doing this show, he seemed like he was the hot up-and-comer in the world of horror. He had done that uh, House of the Devil. Mm-hmm. Then he did yeah. that Innkeepers, which was okay. He did something called The Sacrament, which I didn't see, and then he got involved with that VHS franchise, and oh boy. And that was that for him. That's a real that Ty West. I think when we started the podcast, when we started the podcast, I think Ty West was probably the most famous West out there. You know what I mean? He was like the only <laughs> yeah. West in town. Didn't Ty West also do that? Um, the sequel to uh, Cabin Fever. Yeah. Yeah, indeed he did. I like that. But yeah, yeah. I, I've still only seen his debut. I've I've only seen uh, that the house movie, which I I liked. I thought was fun. Yeah, fun throwback. Well, he he did a couple movies before that, like real super super low budget movies um, that are okay. But I mean, that might as well be his debut since that's like the first time he was. That was like his you know a good. So don't count the other ones because they were just okay. Yeah, and, and B that's the one that like kind of blew up. It was his debut into my heart. Yeah, fair enough. But what have you done for me lately, Ty West? Well, apparently, he is dropping a new movie through the A24 Studios, uh, simply titled X. And the poster features a sexy pair of legs walking through grass towards a ominous house. And it says, dying to show you a good time. Uh, and apparently, it's about the make. it's a horror movie about the making of an adult film. So you got your porno and your horror you got A24, which I think is promising. They usually put out good material. Uh, this movie will start Britney Snow from The Prom Night remake alongside Mia Goth from Suspiria, the new one, I, su- I would have suppose, uh, Kid Cudi, and uh, Scream's Jenna Ortega. Uh, so I don't know. That cast doesn't sound too too hot. But, uh, but I don't know. Um, the trailer drops tomorrow, so all we really have to go on is this poster right now. Um, but what do you think? Are you willing to give Ty West another chance? Um, do you like the idea of a horror base horror movie based on a porno shoot? You think that could have some some fun implications, at least some rude titties? What do you think? You gonna what check out this? Guy? Um, I don't know. I feel like I'm rooting for this guy because I like yeah. some of his stuff. But yeah, the Sacrament was really really bad, and then he made a western with Ethan Hawke that was like pretty bad. Uh, he did direct one of the better episodes of the Scream TV show, though. Okay. And me being a teen, I really like that show. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, I don't know. I'm rooting for him. But, yeah, this cast sounds pretty bad. I don't know. I'll wait for the trailer. I mean, I'll probably see it no matter what. But I don't know. I don't know. It's like he's failed me a, a few too many times, I feel like. Yeah, and it's I mean, it, I think it's hard to get too hyped about the premise like it, at least for me i feel like i've learned at this point to keep my horror and porno separate for the most part um <laughs> the world's already got a serbian film you know what i mean like how many times do we need to go to this well and and revisit it but you literally revisited this well last week i know and, and i feel it. like I'm, I'm learning my lesson <laughs> i didn't i mean i i appreciated it but I, okay. i'm not in a rush to rewatch it no, uh, my, my mistake yeah. And also, uh, yeah, I mean, that that's a different scenario wherein, you know, I think 50 years ago or, or whatever, it was kind of groundbreaking to be mixing these up. But I don't know. Is that what we want right now in the world is, is more ghoulish porn based horror? I don't know. 
Nah, it's just for fun. Prove me wrong, Ty West. <laughs> I'm intrigued. Now I'm very intrigued to find out if you like this movie, Sean. I need to know if you can mix your pornography and your slasher movies and enjoy it and just really accept it. Well, this, that sounds like an invitation for you to pick it for the show. I think I will. Assuming it, it gets released and, you know, movies still exist in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, speaking of something that will exist in the future, I've got some news for you. Uh, this is news for you, Sean, as you have Disney+. Plus, and it's news for you, Kevin, as it's about werewolves. Um, the the Werewolf by Night comic book will be adapted into a Halloween special for Disney+. Plus. God damn uh, it. <laughs> it will, um, as we, we pondered about when the news broke that Moon Knight was going to be a thing, uh, we were wondering if there's was going to be any werewolf by night shit. And turns out there will be. Uh, there's people in the cast that I've never heard of. Laura Donnelly from The Nevers, whatever that is. Uh, some guy from an M. Night Shyamalan movie. I don't know who any of these people are. But uh, werewolf by night. Coming at you. Uh, this, I don't know if I trust Disney Plus to make a, a werewolf story, but. Fuck. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I'll probably watch it. What do you guys think? Not happy about it? I'm pissed. Son of a bitch. <laughs> Why is that? I couldn't be more pissed. Werewolf by Night is my favorite Marvel comic of all time. And mm-hmm. this is how they treat it with the B Squad made for TV Disney Plus version. Can't even <laughs> give me a full theatrical release. You sons of motherfuckers. I I will not watch this. I'll yeah, probably watch it. I'm holding out for Werewolf <laughs> by Day. You know. You ever read the comic, Werewolf no. by Night? No, it's I never great. did. Um sure it's great. Um I don't have a nostalgia for it though, so I don't need to see it being rehashed in twenty twenty two with probably, you know, way worse artwork and everything else. So Yeah, the artwork's this, gonna stink. This is gonna be animated, right? Um, I imagine it will be live action if it's tying into the, the Moon Knight, because Moon Knight's going to be live action. Oh, okay. All I right. actually would be more open to it if it were animated. But, yeah, live action, count me the fuck out. <laughs> what if they recreate that cool cover where Werewolf by Night is fighting uh, Dracula on the moon? Well, in if, front of the moon. And How do you fight in front of the moon? No, they're on the moon. Why are they fighting Dracula, for God's <laughs> sakes? It's back. The Dracula drop is back. I knew that it would come back in context. <laughs> well, the in context part was what was questionable the whole time, but yeah, it's back. <laughs> Let me ask you this, Bowman. Um, have you seen the new Bobby Fett show on, on Disney Plus? I have not. Uh, I really, really enjoy The Mandalorian, but I think Boba Fett sucks. And I don't think that I'll be able to get hooked into a show about such a dumb character, but but people like it. So, yeah, I think this show is going to change your mind on on Bobby Fett. And is, uh, yeah, it's really good so far. There's only t- two episodes are out and the first one was like a like an A minus and the second one is like an A plus. I fucking love the second episode. It's so good. Well, I'll check it out then. It's got an so. incredible, um, like high-speed train jacking kind of an action sequence in the middle of the Tatooine desert. If that does anything for Kevin Moss, you like a train jacking? Yeah, this show can jack my train. 
<laughs> I like train jackings. Um, Some someday. I hear that there's uh, Jabba the Huts type creatures in it. Is that true? We got new huts. Um, okay. We got new Rodians. Like all the races of of creatures that you enjoyed on Tatooine, they're all back. You know what I mean? They're all getting new um, new members of their race highlighted. You know, so it's fun. Okay, I'll try that. Out. I'll try that out. Uh, I I mean they they got me with the Mandalorian. I was sure I was going to hate that, and I love it. So they'll probably get me here. More like the scam DeLorean. <laughs> All right. Well, very nice. You guys uh, got any Blu-rays you want to talk about? I mean, big week. It's uh, the two worst movies of last year came are coming out on Blu-ray between Dune and Halloween Kills. Yikes. You don't have those on pre-order? No. Mm-mm. Fair enough. All right. Well, then on that note, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to get into our first ridiculous motion motion picture of the evening and that is Hamiko from 1974 so stick around be our friend on facebook by going to facebook.com slash junk food dinner we'll all get together and chat about the episodes and nerd news and how stupid the robocop remake is find out about new and upcoming episodes contests and feel the ever-growing love we have for you it's completely confidential and there's no police involvement Listen, I'm a rebel that listens from an 87 position. I can't crystallize the mission lies within. 
Born to die even in death we began It's heavy Joe learning what we already know And carry low swing on the chariot slow Brother stick no reminder me of revolution If the drama come I'ma have to up pop his gun It's the sun guy <laughs>
All right, welcome back to Junk Food Dinner. The first movie on the show tonight is going to be Himiko from 1974. This is directed by Masahiro Shinoda. Uh, and this was a movie that I first saw last year uh, via the Criterion channel. Uh, they had a bunch of Shinodas on there, and I had not seen any movies from this guy. And this one, I guess, via the poster, just kind of caught my eye, and I watched it, and I loved it. Uh, subsequently saw a bunch of his movies, I think about seven of them. Still enjoyed this one the most, but uh, really loved all of them. So um, if you guys do like this, I recommend checking out more of his stuff. Um, this film stars in the title role, um, Japanese actress named Shima Iwashita. She actually married uh, Masahiro Shinoda in 1967. Uh, they're still together, actually. Um, you know, they're both retired and, and old as hell, but still together out there in Japan. Um, over the years... She appeared in many of his movies, um, as well as movies from other directors. Uh, she She's really just kind of a strikingly beautiful actress, and in this movie uh, gives a terrifyingly intense performance. Uh, let's talk about the plot of this movie. Um, it is based on historical records of a real queen of Japan uh, from around the year 200, who was also known uh, to be a powerful shaman, or shaman, shaman, shaman. Um, a, Q, a QAnon shaman. QAnon shaman. Um, so it's about that, you know, about this real um, queen slash QAnon shaman, and also about the various competing religions that existed in Japan around that time. Uh, it's kind of a plot that maybe might seem a little bit overwhelming at first because it's introducing a lot of people and there's a lot of world building. Uh, but I think once you catch up to it, uh, it's not too hard to follow. And, and I say that as somebody who often ha does have a hard time following plots of films. Uh, but you got three main tribes. You got those people who worship the mountain god. Uh, you got those who worship the land god, and some who worship the sun god. And the movie is more or less about the struggles between these three clans, and also about a power struggle within the clan of the sun god, uh, wherein two characters are both vying to take control of the king's throne uh, of that kingdom of the sun god. Uh, these two people are a dude named Mimaki and um, the aforementioned Himiko, who, um, you know, in her role as a shaman, can speak directly to the sun god and ser serves as kind of like a medium uh, between these people and their god. So that's kind of the underlying situation uh, until a traveling dude named Takahiko shows up and he throws everything into, into disarray. You know, his presence might have inspired a lovesick Himiko to make a bloody play for the throne. Uh, and then when the other women around the Sun Kingdom start exploring their slow motion fuck styles with Takahiko, uh, things get even more heated. So all of this boils up to a violent, sexually charged final well, act. Let's not overlook the fact that uh, uh, Takahiko and Himiko are technically related yeah yeah it's it's a brother sister scenario or or a half brother kind of scenario at least um it doesn't stop them from fucking though doesn't stop them from fucking but to be honest i mean there's a lot of um questionable sexual relations in this uh that's not the only one where you, you might turn a side eye towards it um and all of these sexual trysts and you know competitions for power uh, lead to this climax of the film that is like equal parts Shakespeare and Jodorowsky. And that's kind of the vibe, more or less. You know, it's it's this Shakespeare-level dramatic intensity and this Jodorowsky-level symbolism, which, you know, I think even if you're not native Japanese, which I'm not, you know, I, I think you'll appreciate 
a lot of it, you know, some of it, you know, I don't know what the hell he's trying to say with these repeated shots of, you know, deers running around the forest or this, this loom that they're using to sew clothing. Uh, but it means something. And I appreciate kind of the visual fetishization of these objects. I think is really effective, even if I don't know what the fuck it means, um, which I think is another reason to love this movie is just how it looks. I think this is one of the best looking movies ever made. Like I love the use of color in the costumes I love the locations in this. All of the framing is insanely precise. Uh, the use of the four by three is really effective in this. And the placemaking is super believable. You know, it, it never to me feels like this is a movie made in the 70s trying to show you, you know, 2000 years ago. It, it feels like you're just looking way into the past, which I think is kind of impressive given that it is so stylized. You know, there's a lot of stuff in here that is heavily stylized. You got these shots of uh, Himiko standing in front of a setting sun that it's clearly like early green screen technology, but it's so stylized in such a cool way. And um, there's all this staging in this that is clearly reminiscent of like Japanese traditional theater, like kabuki theater and stuff like that. <clears throat> and I think that stuff all looks incredible. I'm guessing that was probably an inspiration for Paul Schrader when he made uh, Mishima in the 1980s. Um, but just looks great and also you know there's some cool music in this a lot of traditional japanese music but kind of unusual traditional japanese music that maybe you have not heard before um and the actors are great shima iwashita is i think awesome in this lead role she's like just so intense and insane uh but so is everybody else uh this guy masayo kusakari plays uh, the role of takahiko um, and he was actually known as a model at the time. He wasn't really an actor. He was just kind of a model for, I think it was Shiseido Cosmetics. Um, but people liked him in this role, and, and I liked him in this role. And so he would go on to have um, a pretty good career in, in Japanese cinema after this. Uh, also in the cast is the great Yoshikato, who you might remember as the old noodle master in Tampopo, which we watched here on the show. He's great as, as the king in this. Um, even the smaller roles are turned into pretty great characters. Like the Knights of the Sun God have this wild looking armor that's made out of grass and these cool faces on these guys. I just love all those guys. And uh, the mountain people in this are just really weird and decrepit looking. And I, I love the way that these guys move around, like all their bones are broken or something. I guess the overall look of these mountain god people was based on a form of Japanese dance called Buto. Uh, which apparently was developed in the 1960s and focuses on grotesque, surreal, and sexualized con contortions. Uh, it's a form of dance I didn't know much about until I saw this movie, um, but apparently it was um, it was created by this guy, Tatsumi uh, Hijikata, who appears in this movie as one of the mountain god uh, people. You know, he's one of the, the dancing mountain god guys that you see like during that big battle scene, dancing on the edge with the fire and all that stuff. Pretty interesting guy, this Tatsumi uh, Hijikata, and, and worth looking up. His contributions to the world of Japanese um, high art are, are pretty interesting. So, yeah, I mean, like I said before, I think this is still my favorite um, Masahiro Shinoda film that I've seen, but I, I still have more to see. Uh, he directed um, the original version of the movie Silence that Scorsese remade not too long ago. Um, I still haven't seen that, so I, I want to catch that one. Um, but for me, this movie, Himiko, I think is just the perfect blend of high-level, masterful filmmaking and weird-ass subject matter. You know, I, I mean, not to spoil anything, but there's a point in this film where a dude 
has his fingernails ripped off his fingers while all around him there's this blood-soaked sex orgy uh, with humans and chickens just kind of raging around him, which is not something that you see in every movie. Um, you know, which, which I guess is to say this movie is probably not for everyone, but, it, you know, I think the people that who, who will enjoy this um, will enjoy it a lot, you know, and, and maybe even if you're a guy like me who was a little bit squeamish about mixing sex and horror, um, it's it's still so visually beautiful that I, I think it, it smooths over, over those edges uh, pretty easily. Uh, but if you, you know, if you like things like Princess Mononoke or you just have a general interest in Japanese history or Japanese folklore, or if you like foreign acid freakout films, I think this is the movie for you. Uh, but what did you guys think about this here, Himiko? Well, Sean, I'm happy to say that we uh, were on the same page because I didn't take a lot of notes, but one of the notes that I did write was Japanese Shakespeare meets Jordorowski. So nice. we are definitely in sync there. Um, yeah, so I, I agree with you. Um, I think this movie looks gorgeous i mean that's the first thing that kind of strikes you about this movie is just the general look of it and the just like you said the style um vibrant colors beautifully photographed um very elaborate and unique costuming um and yeah i mean as someone who's obviously not super familiar with you know japanese folklore and history i don't know the story and i'll be completely honest with you i unlike you i did struggle a bit to follow what was going on with with a lot of these power dynamics and different tribes and stuff like i mean i feel like i got the general gist but um i you know obviously it's a movie that you have to pay pretty close attention to and you know if you're not paying the strictest of attention you can miss a lot and so i don't know maybe i just need to go back and rewatch this to to fully you know absorb everything that was going on but I, I like i said i got the gist but i would be lying if i said that i was completely you know in tune with what was happening throughout this entire movie because there is a lot to take in so mostly i was just appreciating the visual aspect of it and there's a lot to appreciate like you said just um it's it's a, it, i've never seen a movie that looks like this i mean obviously with the costuming and the time period and stuff there's just a lot of very unique things about us and maybe there's this uh, this might be more commonplace in um, Japanese cinema that I don't know about, but as far as stuff again in Japan, that's you know kind of common. I I don't know, is it common? I don't, but I've never seen anything like this. Is all I'm trying to say. Um, and so yeah, there's a lot of just really cool cool shots in this, and it's a very you know if you want to watch this as as kind of a like Jordorowski trippy experience, just taking in the weirdness and the the wonder of it all. I think you can do that and still have a fairly interesting time. Uh, but like you said, this isn't for everybody. And if you're going into this and I don't know, you're not used to this type of storytelling and you're, you know, there's a lot of stuff here that can be kind of off putting as well. Cause I'll be honest, there are times that I struggled with this when things are getting like, what the, what the fuck is going on? Like, wait, who's this and why are they doing this? And uh, I don't know. So that was a little frustrating, but maybe that's just me. Um, being an idiot, but, um, but yeah, like you said, some really interesting performances in this, um, the two leads are the two leads. I consider Himiko and the, the other guy, her brother that 
Foxer. Yeah. Both very good. Um, both very interesting. And the mountain people, the people that you mentioned, the people that with like the white faces and the disturbing, distorted uh, ways of movement, those are the most nightmare-inducing group of motherfuckers to appear on screen since the Wheelers in Return to Oz. Right? Uh, yeah, those insane. Dude, like, creepy as think, shit. You would think once this movie is made, those kind of guys should be popping up in every Japanese horror movie, but they don't. Right. It's, it's yeah. still very unique. Yeah, and there's some really, I mean, there's some genuinely, like, yeah, horrific elements to this. Like, you know, if you like some real cool stylized tense horror, like when those mountain dudes are like walking across that like raked sand yard to eventually attack that lady. That's like just genuinely terrifying and uh, just like spooky. And and And, the, uh, the angle that they shoot, you know, where it's top down when, when they do reach her and they start pulling her legs apart. That is crazy. It's frightening. Yeah. Yeah, So there's definitely, if you're, you know, a fan of stylized horror, there's a lot to like in this. Um, again, if you're, if you're like me and you know, maybe you're smarter than I am, or maybe you can latch on a little better. Um, you know, maybe it's a, a more satisfying watch, but I do feel like this was hindered a bit by me trying to put the pieces together and getting frustrated along the way where I would get lost with the story from time to time. But again, it's probably my fault and I just probably need to pay better attention and, uh, you know, maybe watch a second time because the subject matter is so foreign to me that I, you know, it might take a couple times for it to really sink in with me, but from a visual perspective, I think it looks awesome. I think it's a very unique movie and it's definitely an interesting watch. Um, but, you know, you might have to really pay attention to follow along with what's going on. Well, I think now we come to the guy who I was most worried about his reaction to this movie that I hold so near and dear to my heart. And and I'm hoping that he does not break that heart. <laughs> well, um, the good news is that I agree that it's very unique and, and pretty to look at. Um, and then the other good news is that I don't hate it, uh, but it's definitely not for me. Um, I it, I agree that it's very hard to understand what's going on at any point because the power dynamic stuff is, I mean, I feel like you probably had to read a lot of Japanese history and poetry books to get a grasp on what is on the groundwork of what's happening in the movie. Um, and then also the dialogue is the thing that is a real pet peeve of mine about a lot of Japanese stuff where the dialogue is not dialogue, it's just poetry. And, uh, you know, it's just hard to grasp onto a movie where the characters are talking about how politics are like a butterfly. Couldn't you say the same thing about Shakespeare? I think that's probably the reason why both Sean and I made that comparison, is because I felt like a lot of the dialogue in this felt Shakespearean in nature. Well, Shakespeare writes very pointed things in flowery ways like shakespeare's characters will be like hey buddy fuck you i'm gonna fuck your wife and kick the shit out of you but they'll say it flowery and i feel like in this there there isn't much that's pointed it's all just flowery that i think that may just be more associated with you know 
you not following the story. And I, I think that if you be. were, yeah, if, if you had a better grasp on what was happening, like, you know, what they were saying would probably make more sense. And, and, and also, I, I do want to say, you, you, both you guys are not wrong. It's, it's a little bit tricky to wrap your brain around at first. And I, I think probably its biggest failing is not clearly delineating, like, who belongs to what tribe at first. Like, and I know it would be cheesy to have, like, a Chiron at the bottom of the screen with text saying, like, these guys are with the sun god or something, and these guys are with the mountain <laughs> god. But it would be helpful. Like, they, they should have done something up, up top. I think that's really where at first you're like, wait a minute, like, why does he not like this guy? And what land is he from? But well, once you wrap your head, head around that, I think it's easy. Well, not only that, but besides just that, there's just also a lot of just what the fuck is going on right here kind of moments. Like, <laughs> what am I looking at? Like, they're yeah. pointing a mirror at this woman's crotch and she's having an orgasm. Like, okay. Yeah, like, but that, that's more, I mean, you don't question that in a Jodorowsky movie, right? Like, that's, you know, it's just weird, symbolic, acid, freak out kind of stuff that you can, it's open to interpretation, you know? Right, but between that and the not following the story, there is a lot of times in this where I was going, what the fuck? Yeah, it's it's, it's totally fair. I, I get it. Yeah, I think Jodorowsky, like, he'll cement his stuff in a way that's sort of real so that when you get the WTF stuff, it like you're still latched on to something like I get these guys are cowboys wandering around the desert and they stumble upon a cave full of freaks. <laughs> you know, it's like the, the freaks are weird, but I, I get the journey um, or, you know, here's a carnival, the shit inside of it's weird, but I understand the framework of what is a carnival um, to whereas here, whether it's because, I wasn't paying attention or whether it's because I don't know Japanese history or whether it's because of the movie isn't telling me properly. I don't like, I, I felt like there just wasn't even that framework within, you know, that I could sit down on while trying to suss out all the weird shit. I gotcha. Um, but I like, I like the mountain folk. They look like dark souls, bad guys. And that's very important to me after playing that game, that movies have Dark Souls bad guys in them. Um, yeah, I, I wish this movie had a line of action figures. That I'd totally buy. <laughs> yeah. Action figures that you could like make do that really slow fuck style. Yeah. I think that, that would be good. I love that fuck style. Do you think and that think... fuck style was, one, for artistic purposes, or two, to get, you know, to get around Japanese censors of like showing thrusting? Oh, it could be, yeah. I mean, maybe partially both. Yeah. Also, I didn't I mean, mind I, it, though. It's fun. I thought it was there just to represent guys like me, who that is their fuck style. That is the way I fuck. I just, <laughs> it's perfectly quiet and still like an alligator. Hold it, hold it. <laughs> I do not move like a sloth in a tree. That is my fuck style. Bowman famously can only get hard when he's surrounded by two large mounds of triangular clay. <laughs> That is true. That is my kink. Um, so, uh, so yeah. So, um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's. A, I feel like I like this movie. I went away from it feeling like, all right, I'm glad I watched that. But I also pray to God I never watch it again. And I, um, I don't. If somebody asked me what happened in it, I would just shrug. So I don't. <laughs> I don't know how, how to how to reconcile those emotions, but, uh, but I gave it, I gave it good marks on letterboxd. So this is a good movie. 
Well, if it's if it's got good marks on Letterboxd, then it <laughs> must be a good movie. I think we've all learned that over our years on that site. Um, and I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm, I didn't expect you to to fall in love with this, you know, head over heels or anything. But um, if you think this director is interesting, and I think this guy is is making really interesting movies, especially in the '70s and '80s. Um, I would recommend his his next feature, which is called Under the Blossoming Cherry Trees. It's got the same lead actress, his wife, and a lot of decapitations. A lot of people get their heads chopped mm-hmm. off. Um, it also stars, um, what's the guy's name? I, I forget the guy's name, but the lead actor from Lone Wolf and Cub and Shogun Assassin. Uh, he's in it, and he's great in it. And um, it's a little bit easier to follow storyline-wise. It, it doesn't have all this... Um, warring faction kind of stuff it's a lot fewer characters but that's under the blossoming cherry trees this was himiko which is still i think on the criterion channel alongside a bunch of other movies from this director and i think also somebody uploaded uh, himiko to youtube uh, there's there's a pretty good quality copy up there so i say check it out give it a shot it's certainly unlike anything that you probably have seen before i would say um, but I think that about wraps it up for Himiko. We will take a quick break and then we'll come back to talk about something else that's pretty unique. The Astrologer from 75, 76, I think. Stick around. Junk Food Dinner has done 600 episodes. The time that most people use to achieve successful careers, get money and start families, your JFD boys use to watch Neil Breen movies. Japanese ghoul films and Dick Shark. Why not alleviate the JFD burden and send your boys some money? Go to patreon.com slash junkfooddinner and donate five bucks to get a monthly bonus episode, or ten dollars to start picking the movies, or one hundred dollars for exclusive nude calendars. Junk Food Dinner needs your help to alleviate its existential shame.
Craig Marcus Alexander. I was born to lie, cheat, and steal. I steal hundreds of thousands of dollars, only I do it legally. The left hand shows that you had a romance that just ended. Very close. World famous sidereal astrologer, Craig Marcus Alexander, the astrologer. Do you really know your true sun sign? What about the horoscopes for the public? The books aren't selling. Nothing is happening. You're falling, baby, right down into the muck. Everything that you see, everything that you do, everything that you are is because of me. Bullshit! You've got nothing left. Now, when are we going to get down to business? Business. 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 When you hear the sound of the drums, you're as good as it is. What now? More shit. Back to Junk Food Dinner, the next film we're going to be taking a look at on the show this evening is The Astrologer from 1975 or 1976, depending on who you ask, not to be confused with the other astrologer, also from the same year. Uh, this is the astrologer that was directed and stars uh, Craig Denny. And to understand the astrology, you first, I think, have to understand the story behind The Astrologer. Wait the a astro- minute. We didn't do the Glickenhaus version? No, we did not do the Glickenhaus version. Son of a bitch. Are you serious? No, I'm fucking with you. I was going to say, we discussed this. <laughs> we did discuss no, we, this. We went over this. But I, I just wanted to underline it here at the top so that it, you know nobody makes the mistake that I could have made. Right. Uh, but the story behind this astrologer is the story of Craig Denny, um, who, by all accounts, this is what you would call a vanity project. And, you know, we've talked about vanity projects uh, on the show before. Probably most notably things like um, Neil Breen come to mind or uh, Tommy Wiseau of The Room or uh, the Duke Mitchell movies like Gone with the Pope and uh, things like that. Where it's, you know, one guy, he's got a vision and he wants to make a movie, although he might not know a lot about making movies. Uh, He wants to star in it, too, even though he might not know a lot about acting. And somehow he's got enough money to make this dream a reality. And that's where we get some of these great vanity projects. And a lot of them turn out to be, you know, in the so bad they're good category or just watch this asshole make a fool of himself and spend all his money trying to make himself the star of a movie. Uh, But this one, 
uh, again, is the subject is, is Craig Denny. And not a lot is known about this dude. In fact, um, not a lot's really known about this movie itself. Uh, but Craig Denny, from what I could gather, he might be American, might be Canadian. Not quite sure. Uh, but he did have some money, um, enough to to make this uh, uh, his own kind of movie studio, which really only made this movie and and make this movie. And this, as you can tell, as we'll talk about, this movie has a little bit of money behind it. I mean, it's not a huge budget movie, but it's clearly a higher budget than you know some of the other stuff that was coming. You know, super low budget stuff that was coming out around this time. I'd have to guess at least a couple mil went into this, at least for travel alone. But well, and you know how he got all that money was uh, via that chain of diners that he's been running. Well, no, that's the thing. I mean, people have have you know hypothesized about how he earned his money. Some he claimed that he, like the character in this movie, that he had made his money in a computer astrology service where he was one of the first computer astrology services and would give people their horoscopes and stuff via the computer. And he claims that's how he made his, his fortune in the seventies. That's that's what, that's what I saw. There's a a webpage called the lost media wiki. And they said that he ran something called moon house international, which was an astrology company, but they also didn't have very much info other than that. Well, and he may have run that, but there's also people that claim that didn't make him his money. He just had an inheritance from a rich relative, which also might be the case. But in any case, he had enough money to make the astrologer. And the astrologer, I think, kind of plays out like maybe like a fantasy of what he thinks, like, you know, maybe his life could be because it basically is him, uh, Craig Denny. And he's telling the story about he starts off telling us about how he grew up as like a little thief pickpocketing ladies at the carnival, then went on to work at the carnival as a astrologer, you know, a, a fortune teller. Um, and I think we're led to believe that he's, you know, does truly have like some supernatural powers where he can, he can kind of tell the future, but he uses them, you know, to bilk, uh, clients out of their money at local fairs. Uh, he meets a woman, falls in love with her. They hang around the carnival for a couple years before she leaves him. Uh, as he's not making good on his promise to become a world famous astrologer. Uh, but after his lady leaves him, that opens him up to get into business with this couple who want to take him overseas on some sort of jewel expedition. They, I guess they think they know where some jewels are, but they need him and his psychic abilities to win over some sort of African priest, uh, or, you know, leader or something to tell him where the jewels are. Neither one of them, these this couple survive. They get the jewels, but only uh, Craig Denny's character survives uh, and makes it back out of Africa on a ship where months go by. We know because a calendar shows pages being ripped off over and over again, letting you know the passage of time. Uh, while a Moody Blues song plays, of all things, he then like fucks around in Tahiti for a little bit, trying to sell these cursed stones that he's ripped off and he goes to this like weird tiki bar where old ladies show their breasts and has a bunch of weird um you know nudie art on the wall which is uh probably my favorite part of this movie where he's partying at that tiki bar uh, he tries to make a deal to sell these uh diamonds there but that deal goes awry and ends up with a dude getting shot in the head he then takes off back to america where he builds an astrology empire like he becomes like an astrologer for the government 
and like helps them predict stuff and uh, it, it builds this empire where he's also created his own movie studio. Again, you can see where the kind of autobiographical part comes in here. And but in this reality, he's a huge success, and his movie studio is grossing like 150 million. Um, and he uses this as an excuse to go find that lady that. Uh, abandoned him all those years ago when they were partnering up at the circus. She's fallen on hard times. She's tricking herself out of the rat-infested hotel room. He takes her out of it, marries her, and makes her the star of his movie. Uh, but things aren't going so well. His business partner, his longtime friend, uh, tells him, you know, his, you know, the creditors are after him. His empire is falling apart. And it just slowly declines, and then that's the end of the movie. <laughs> and so, um, again, Craig Denny fully funded this movie, directed and stars in it, and he uh, created his own little motion picture company. This was this did get a you know somewhat theatrical release in the United States. I don't know how big it, but it did play you know at least somewhat nationwide, um, maybe just for a weekend. But it did have a pretty a fairly sizable release for an independent movie. But after that, it did slip into obscurity. It was never released on home video and never licensed for um, cable television. And then when Craig Denny died in the 80s, again, that's another thing that's like kind of surrounded mystery. No one knows exactly when he died or what he died of. And there's even some theories that he may have faked his own death and fucked off to another country, much like uh, Craig, the character in this movie, to avoid taxes. Um, but that's a whole nother story, but the movie itself, again, just languished into obscurity and for a while was considered to be kind of a lost movie. Like people would find newspaper articles about it and try to find a copy online. No such luck uh, until fairly recently. The fine folks at AGFA, the American genre film archive, I guess received a box with like thousands of porno movies on 35 millimeter and mixed in within this porno was the astrologer. Um, so that is the only known existing print of it. Agfa then digitized it and does lease it out for theatrical viewing. Uh, but because of the music licensing, because this does feature songs by the Moody Blues and Proco Harem and a few other big names, they, I guess, have not been able to secure the music licensing to release this as a DVD or Blu-ray. And I guess the rights to the movie are also kind of in a weird limbo with Craig Denny being passed on into death and no one really knowing who owns it otherwise. So for a while you couldn't see it at all. And then the only way you could see it was theatrically, which, you know, not a lot of people are really screening this theatrically, uh, but then it leaked online and now is available through, you know, most of the torrenting sites and he's even in its entirety on YouTube. So it is lost no more. Um, but whether or not it deserves to be lost forever or not, I guess that's up to you. I, you know, this movie is clearly made by a, amateur filmmaker the editing in it i think is probably the thing that jumps out at most people it has a wild editing style and to the fact where it feels like the movie is constantly like trying to catch up to itself where it's like it just smash cuts to like the next scene the next scene the scene you're like whoa 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 hold on like what the fuck's going on like why are we here what is going on uh sometimes it has like this real rapid fire editing like in some of the action scenes where it's like dude take it easy with the cuts like you are going nuts and, you know, uh, but there are some cool stylish elements, like when they're in the jungle hunting these uh, jewels, there's like scenes where like this like uh, skull will fade in. And there's one point where um, somebody gets shot and there's like this like cartoonish blood that comes down on the screen. I thought was pretty fun touch. Um, and there's some wild edits like at that tiki bar where they keep showing like a cigarettes and a urinal and like 
just like random POV shots of a guy like stumbling around the tiki bar, I think just to show the weird artwork on the wall. Very strange. Um, and, you know, because this is the only known print, it does have some technical issues. There's parts of this where the sound gets a little blown out and funky. And, um, you know, sometimes the, the image is a little grainy or has some, some imperfections. So it's not a the perfect looking movie by any means. But again, pretty impressive looking for a self-made vanity project um, in 1975. I mean... Again, there's probably at least a couple million put into this because they did film on location. They did go overseas and places like Tahiti and um, things like that. Where, But a lot of it was obviously shot here in the United States as well. Um, most of the people in it weren't professional actors, so obviously you get some pretty amateur acting as well. But again, you know, if you like things like The Room or those Duke Mitchell movies or um, even Neil Breen, I will make the comparison, even though I think this guy at least understands filmmaking a little bit, unlike Neil Breen, who doesn't understand it at all. Um, Come on, Kevin Moss. That's not fair. (laughs) I think it's absolutely fair. Um, I don't know. I thought this was an interesting watch, and especially an interesting curiosity of something, you know, that this vanity project that has been lost to time and now has resurfaced. It's just an interesting story. The movie itself, I mean, it's not amazing but there's enough uh interesting stuff to to get you through um so i had a good time watching this even though it's far from a a good movie it's it's nevertheless an interesting curiosity the term that we use a lot on the show when we're trying to be nice for bad movies with maybe (laughs) interesting stories but what did you guys think of the astrologer well i agree that it's an interesting curiosity um I had no idea what the story was at all when I turned it on. I knew nothing about it. Um, I knew that if it was about an astrologer, it would probably not be good because astrology is stupid. I'm just going <laughs> to say something very brave here. <laughs> say what we're all thinking. Um, and, uh, yeah, astrology is dumb. Um, and if someone's going to make a movie about it, uh, that movie is probably going to be pretty boring and stupid. Um but, and uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I was like baffled at the beginning because it seemed like someone found a bunch of footage. It seems like that New York Ninja movie where like people found footage, but they did not find the audio. So it's just like all this like footage and then like they redubbed it and cut together what they could to make some sort of a story. Um, because yeah, it's, I mean, it, well, at first I thought it was like just stock footage with people dubbing voices over to try to form a story. And it, it, as it wore on, it seemed like that was not the case and that this was actually like supposed to form something at some point, which, um, was deeply surprising. It, it especially seems like that because you don't expect a a movie like this to have all of this location shooting, you know, like Kevin said, overseas, like they went to Kenya, they went to Thailand, Mm -hmm. like that's not, you know, in the game plan for a movie like this usually. Yeah, true. So I, yeah, I thought that maybe they were just taking stock footage from all these places and just trying to cobble it together, but it seems like they were really doing it, which is even more baffling because I mean, so much of the, I mean, all of the dialogue I think is dubbed and so much of the dialogue is dubbed 
while we're not seeing people's faces or their lips move or anything like that. So, I mean, it's it it really feels like, yeah, with the editing, like they they must have only been able to shoot very minimal stuff and they had to work their asses off to cobble something together. Um, or they just had the worst editor on earth because even the stuff that they do have is edited horribly, like you said. Like, yeah. Well, I'm sure it's a first-time editor, whoever the fuck it is, because I think everybody in this was first-time everything. <laughs> well, to, to like defend the editing for one minute, though, there is that cool usage, I think two or three times, of the screen wipe that looks like dripping blood. I thought yeah. that was fun. That's oh, good. yeah. Yeah, I would never besmirch the dripping blood wipe. Yeah. Other um, than that, though, yeah, it's insane. Yeah, like something will happen, and like they'll just like... I mean, it, it's like disorienting. Like, I mean, I really feel like people would get epilepsy watching this. Like that, like, you know, there's like a, t- you know, like they'll, they'll do a little punchline where somebody gets shot at the end of a scene or something. And like, they just like smash like all these, like just a million frames per second at you, like all in a row. And it's just like, what, what the, I'm woozy now. I'm woozy. I gotta sit down. Um, so yeah. So, I mean, it was a little bit painful to watch just for that. Um, and then, I mean, it's like all this like weird stuff. Like they're searching for diamonds to start their astrology business. Like that shit doesn't make any sense. Starting an astrology business doesn't make sense. Like you just write, like it's just, you open up a little stand at the county fair and you tell people their fortunes or whatever. That's all you got to do. Like they had it right at the beginning of the movie. That's all you got. That's all you need. No, he had to build that empire where he became a fortune teller to the government. <laughs> Which makes no sense. You know, a tale as old as time. (laughs) Of course, of course. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's just like, it's baffling to watch. Like, I I mean, it sort of felt like what I imagine, like some of those like Mill Creek DVD, you know, it's like, you'll see like that 100, uh, you know, political thrillers for a dollar dvds you know at at walmart from time to time and like this seems like kind of the bones of what one of those would be like i know on some of the mill creek dvds i have like uh you know william shatner's like the president's bodyguard kind of thing and like it feels like this may have played as like the double feature to like a movie of that caliber because like there is like some sort of like political intrigue and like it seems like they want us to think there are thrills and adventure in the movie but but yeah, it just kind of falls apart into into uh, like you said, Neil Breen territory, where like, I you know this guy just kind of stopped making a movie at some point and just wanted us to think he was like very cool and like wanted us to think that he was really an astrologer in real life or something like that. Like, and it just becomes, uh, yeah, just a mess of of like this guy just you know putting in all the shit that he thinks. Uh, would make him look cool in real life um, rather than telling any sort of a story, which is not what Neil Breen does. Neil Breen tells very beautiful stories that resonate deeply with a lot of people. Uh, <laughs> no, There's no hubris in what Neil Breen does, Kevin. You wish. <laughs> um, but yeah, but this, this did kind of remind me of Neil Breen. It reminded me a lot of that Time Travel Jesus movie we did where it's just like, uh, you know, what uh, some weirdo with extra money had an idea, and and now we've got to suffer through it and or 
love it ironically something like that um so i don't know i mean it's okay i guess like parts of it are interesting and fun and mostly it's just kind of boring like the dude that scene where they're on the boat and they they flash us every single calendar day tuesday the seventh wednesday the eighth like it just keeps going forever i i thought i was gonna lose my mind with some of that stuff so i don't know what fun there is kind of gets eaten away by stuff like that so i don't know it's okay i guess yeah i I think it's safe to say i can see why this movie was not a you know a box office uh bonanza for uh, good old craig denny and and (laughs) why it was forgotten um i had never seen this you know i think i had heard uh the news about it when agfa had you know rediscovered it or, or whatever and and this is the kind of thing that is interesting to me. You, you know, I think anytime there's, you know, lost film or not, anytime there's a, a director out there who made exactly one movie, and especially if he put himself in the lead of it, um, and especially if it's like pre-shot on video, you know, when people are actually taking the time to shoot on film and, and you know, go the distance like this and, and actually make a movie, that alone is interesting um and and so i was excited for this you know and and given the backstory about this guy mysteriously disappearing and and all this stuff i I was intrigued but i would be lying if i said that i had a ton of fun watching this movie i I mean the, the the first thing that you notice when you watch this is as you mentioned the acting is just terrible and and this comes a week after we watched three hardcore pornos <laughs> and i think the acting in this is worse than any of the pornos last week which you know is really saying something um probably my favorite thing about this movie is the location that they start out start out at the pike um the the carnival type location which is um was in long beach it was a, a real theme park called the pike or queen's park it ran from 1902 to 1979 and has a long history of appearing in movies, you know, going all the way back to 1918 when it appeared in a Fatty Arbuckle short called The Cook. Um, but it, it also pre- plays a prominent role in the film noir I Wake Up Screaming. Uh, and most importantly, uh, it serves as the backdrop for some memorable scenes in The Incredibly Strange Creatures Who Stopped Living and Became Mixed-Up Zombies. Uh, oh, yeah. Ray Steckler. Yeah, from 64. So it's a location that I've always enjoyed seeing in movies. I never got a chance to go to it because I didn't grow up out here and it was closed, you know, well, in 79. I mean, I, I wasn't even alive anyways when it closed. So, um, but, you know, I'm familiar with it um, through movies. And this was a look at it that I thought uh, was worth seeing because you get these great helicopter shots, you know, overhead at the beginning that I'm guessing Craig Denny filmed or maybe that is stock footage. Commissioned. I, I, commissioned. I, I, I mean, that's, that's pricey stuff doing a nighttime helicopter shot of a theme park and it looks good. So I'm, I'm glad that it's in here. And then you get some daytime shots of, of the theme park itself that I thought were fun. Um, it's sad that we don't get that kind of, you know, solid placemaking in the other locations in this movie, you know, guys traveling to Thailand, he's traveling to Kenya and all these things. And I feel like you barely see much of it, you know, instead we're, we're going around the world to, shoot these scenes that are like indoors with just people just kind of yapping at each other, just sitting around having conversations that are badly written and poorly filmed when you could have just went outside with your camera and pointed it at what was already there. And I probably would have enjoyed that a lot more. 
Um, so that's kind of a bummer. Um, but there are a few fun things here aesthetically. You know, I, I mentioned that the dripping blood wipe. I really like that. Uh, some of the music in this is good. Like it, it uses a section of um, the Planets Suite by Holst, uh, a piece of classical music that you would probably recognize as being the primary inspiration, I guess we would say, for John Williams' Star Wars score. Some people would say that John Williams just kind of shamelessly ripped off Holst uh, with his Star Wars score, uh, but it's it's fun to hear that in this. Uh, there's that cool neon sign for the Pago Pago nightclub. Mm-hmm. I think that's in Kenya, but I, I like that sign. And as Kevin mentioned, you know, you get that tour of the bar and especially of the men's room of that bar um, with all the, um, you know, the naked lady artwork on the walls that I thought was really cool. And and they shoot that with this cool fish dye lens that looks really neat. So I thought that, I mean, that 15 to 20 seconds of touring around a bar in Kenya or or whatever, I thought that was pretty rad. And I thought that it was kind of a fun follow up to that scene. Um that we get those old women um, flashing their titties at camera. Did not expect (laughs) that. I mean, this is a movie full of surprises, but I I think that was maybe the most surprising thing uh, in it. Um, My favorite part was, um, I think also at that same bar, or maybe it was a different bar, but there's a scene where this guy walks up behind Craig Denny um, in a bar and I guess Craig Denny is presuming this guy is going to do some shady business because <laughs> before he can even do anything, I mean, he's not threatening in the least. He's just walking behind the guy. Craig Denny like swivels around with a beer bottle and smashes him right in the face. And I thought that was cool. It was a, you know, a preemptive strike that, that I thought was kind of impressive. But like, overall, he's an, ast- he's an astrologer, man. He can see the future. Fair enough. Fair point. Yeah, I guess he saw it, you know, in in the stars or whatever. But I I mean, overall, I I think this is one of those things that is more interesting in theory than the actual experience of watching it, especially if you're watching it alone like I did. Um, If you're the kind of guy that likes these kind of movies, especially if you like to goof on them with your friends, I think there's stuff to, you know, to extract from this that will, you know, bring you some kind of joy. But um overall i mean i I didn't hate it but i I would not go out of my way to recommend this to anybody but it's it's neat that it exists and that uh, it's been saved um i will say that yeah absolutely anytime a film that is perceived to be lost uh gets rediscovered i think that's a good thing and like you said from especially one that's like this kind of vanity project and kind of interesting story behind it like there could be a disaster artist style documentary about the making of the astrologer that could win some Oscars or something, but yeah, totally. Until then, uh, look for the uh, astrologer online. Probably won't see it in your local video store anytime soon, but hey, at least now you can find it. But I think that just about wraps it up for the astrologer or the astrologer. If you're uh, if you're nasty, uh, we are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to get into our final film of the evening, and that is Slave Girls from Beyond Infinity from 1987. So stick around.
ball and chain For 16 years she's been hanging around Trying to bury me in a hole in the ground Well I think it's time that I even the score There's only room for one in this cage of yours To the Stone Age with me. distant future, there will still be slaves, helpless against the desires of their masters. Keep my hands off me. At the mercy of their every whim and perversion. Bound to their masters by chains and subjected to every humiliation and cruelty. They want more than their freedom now. They want revenge. Feels good to be back in the saddle again. Engine's hot. Can't you drive engaged? It's a big movie with big adventure, big action. Have you got a knife? Only this. It'll have to do. Big robots, big romance. <laughs> big production and big girls. I intend to hunt you. You're a human fiend. Slave girls from beyond infinity. They're for sale, but they could cost you your life.
Slave Girls from Beyond Infinity. Welcome back to Junk Fod Schlitzy. The final Schlitzy this evening is Slave Girls from Beyond Infinity. This is a 1987 film directed by Ken Dixon. You may know him as the director of The Best of Sex and Violence. Maybe, but probably not, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's the one where that guy's wearing the weird, like, fur hat. Yeah, he's wearing, like, a fur hat, and, like, he's hanging out with a bikini-clad lady. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember uh, that video cover. Mm-hmm. Uh, more importantly, though, this is produced by Charles Band, uh, right, I guess, at the end of Empire, beginning of Full Moon. Um, this is put on... But- is it produced by Charles Band? I was confused by that. Is this just something that he kind of picked up after it was already shot? No, that, he produced it. It was this weird imprint. What was it called? Like Beyond Urban, Infinity? No, Urban Classics. Yeah, Urban Classics. The, it was but like yeah. a weird tax shelter label that he had in between Empire and Full Moon. Well, yeah, for distribution. But I think the I, I don't know I wasn't clear on it because like on IMDb they say that it's Beyond Infinity Productions who produced it, and they did like Breeders, Creepazoids, Mutant Hunt, Psychos in Love, Robot Robot Holocaust, This, Galactic Gigolo, Assault on Killer Bimbos, The Occultist, um, Slimeball Bolarama, Cemetery High, Cannibal Women in the Avocado Jungle of Death, Doctor Alien, and Intruder. Those fourteen movies, which I didn't know to be band productions, all of those. Most of those are have become full moon movies. So if he didn't produce them from the outset, then he bought that operation and at some point I would imagine. The only reason that, that I bring it up is that I feel like this feels like a much more I mean in ways it's very crummy, but in other ways it feels <laughs> much more slick than I would expect from a Charles Band production in, in nineteen eighty seven. Well, I think in 87, he still had a little money. I think he's, he hid away some of that Empire money. Full Moon had just started, and Full Moon had that production or that distribution deal with like Paramount or whoever. So yeah. I, think at, I think at this point, he had some money. Um, okay. I, I, just, I didn't sense the, the stench of band on it. And then afterwards, I saw that it, yeah, he's listed as like an executive <laughs> producer uncredited on IMDb, but I didn't know what that meant. Okay. Well, I would imagine that he was there from the beginning. I mean, it's got a, a lot of his trademark things. Naked ladies. Robots. Um, Shamelessly ripping off more successful movies. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, yeah. So, um, let's see. Yeah. So, speaking of sh- ripping off other movies, in this... Uh, we have two ladies who are slaves, perhaps sex slaves, but we aren't—we're not even sure who they're slaves to. I guess at the at the outset of this film, they're just locked up. Elizabeth Caton and Cindy Beale. Uh, Caton, we know and love. She was in um, Jason Part Seven. She was in Silent Night, Deadly Night Part Two. It's Garbage Day. We all know about that. She's in Doctor Alien, Assault on the Killer Bimbos, which we did on the show. Um, a bunch of the Vice Academy movies. Is it Assault On or Assault Of the Killer so, Bimbos? Assault Of. My mistake. My mistake. You can't, you can't, you can't assault these bimbos, man. They're killers. Well, I, <laughs> yeah, absolutely right. both Sean and Parker, go check the tape, both said Assault On 
killed. Oh, Bowman. am I to blame? Maybe I incepted Bowman there with my mispronunciation. You know, there's a lot of movies on that list. I was trying to get through it real quickly. But it sounds like this yeah. lady is just in all of the Beyond Infinity productions. Yeah, it seems like it. Um, so, so, yeah, so she's great. I like her a lot. Um, her and Cindy Beale, who is, I don't know at all. Uh, she was in this and The Chauffeur, whatever that is. Um, they are the titular slave girls. They're enslaved. They manage to escape. They steal a spaceship. The spaceship uh, gets away from whoever their captors are, but then they crash land on a different planet uh, that is inhabited by some weird dude who has a lot of robots um, and also Brink Stevens. And as the girls... Um, wander around and try to figure out what this weird planet is about they realize far too late that they are in the plot of uh, the most dangerous game and they're going to be hunted for sport and that's then, like uh, a sexual <laughs> euphemism right <laughs> and uh and then yeah things go wacky from there they get into fights they uncover mysteries they get tied up they get dressed they get undressed and all all manner of other things. Um, as you mentioned, Sean, there there's a little bit of production value here. We we go to a real ass beach. We go to a nice uh, jungle set. We got this cool weird castle out in the middle of nowhere. The robots look kind of cool. Even the you know the spaceship interior at the beginning of the movie is not bad. It's not that crummy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I would imagine that maybe Charles Band or whoever made four or five movies in a row that probably like that used that spaceship in some of yeah. these sets, which is how they can afford to do it. Um, but I mean, you know, at the end of the day, they still look good. Still looks good. Um, so, so yeah, the, this movie, the tone of it is like kind of a comedy, like to kind of play these girls up to be like a little bit, I don't know, like the tone's all over the place. Like on one hand, there'll be some scenes where like they're kind of bimbos. Like they, one of the girls makes fun of the other girl at one point for losing the map because she puts it in her bra, but she's kind of flat chested. So it just falls out. But then, you know, in other scenes, they, they treat these girls as very capable and heroic. You know, for example, they escape from slavery and steal a spaceship and things like that. So it's like kind of weird. Like it almost feels like it's being torn in two different um directions at at case in point it's called slave girls from beyond infinity and there are very campy like slapsticky things that happen but then also like elizabeth caton gets um like a really like melodramatic monologue at one point about how like hunting people for sports is morally wrong and you shouldn't do it and like and then like there's a, a sex scene but it's played like very romantically and like not um not necess- I mean, not necessarily to just be titillating softcore porn the way you might imagine from a lot of Charles Band stuff. So, like, I don't know. It, it feels like an, an uneven movie that's kind of being torn here and there. Um, but I think at the end of the day, it's kind of fun. It's not as fun as I was expecting. I've been wanting to see this movie for a long, long time. Uh, it feels like one of those titles that used to pop up a lot when I was a kid, like, as like a... You know, anytime I'd rent like Puppet Master, this trailer would be on it and stuff like that. Like, um, or like Joe Bob would mention it a lot, or like Up All Night would mention it a lot, or play it from time to time. And, um, and I would always miss it. And I always wanted to see it. And now I have. Um, 
And yeah, uh, I don't know. It was, like the stat, the cast is fun. Elizabeth Kate and I say like, as I said, I like her. She's always fun and stuff, and she's fun here. Brink Stevens, um, she seems very sleepy. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> she might have just needed a check. Uh, but also very nude. Very nude. That is true. But kind of filmed at an angle where that doesn't mean a whole lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think that this was just like she had to pay her rent, so she decided to be in this one. And then the other girl, I didn't really care for her too much. Um, so, so, yeah, I don't know, kind of a fun movie. If you're in the mood for, um, you know, watching ladies in loincloths fight robots and stuff, uh, I think this is the perfect entertainment for you. Um, what there you is consensual panty sniffing. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, also... Um, when this was released, there was a bit of controversy about it. Um, and let's see. It was specifically criticized on the floor of the U.S. Senate by Senator Jesse Helms, who said that uh, one of his constituents had accidentally stumbled upon the movie while flipping through cable channels. And uh, then he wanted to use this as justification to uh, censor cable TV, uh, which ultimately did not happen. Um, but that's funny that this is... <laughs> that's the legacy of this movie um but yeah i don't know i mean it's okay it's not uh it's not the best what do you guys think about it yeah that's that's wild of, of you know of all movies to be mentioned on uh you know the floor <laughs> of the senate or, or whatever uh that it would be this one um i i had never seen this before and i don't know why i've never seen this before uh it's a title that i've been aware of for a long time and i think once you hear this title it, it does kind of burrow into your brain and I, I think I might even have the videotape of this tucked away somewhere. Uh, I, you know, I think maybe it was a situation where, you know, I heard the, heard the title and I, and I felt like, well, I already know what this movie is going to be. So I, I don't really need to see this thing. And I think it, you know, it turns out that I pretty much did know exactly what this movie was already. But that's no reason not to watch a movie like this when it's this much fun. Because uh, I, I had a lot of fun with this movie, you know. Uh, the first thing that you, you realize when you when you put this movie on is that it is it's pretty much a Star Wars clone for the, the first, you know, 20 minutes or, or whatever when, when they're in that spaceship. And and you got these girls dressed up, you know, uh, like Slave Leia from Return of the Jedi, you know, which, which I think was a, one of the primary sources of, of inspiration for this movie, probably, uh, which is fine. I mean, to be honest, it was a major source of inspiration for me, too, in, in the 1980s, uh, that Slave Leia. And I always like going back to these kind of half-assed Star Wars clones that came out in the 1980s. Um, and, and this, I think, is a fun one. You know, there, there's some goofy things ab about the way that they achieve some of these effects. You know, like there's the, um, the star field that you see outside the windows of the spaceship, you know, and that in Star Wars look, you know, like outer space. You know, that the stars are of different sizes and there's like a fluidity to the way that things are moving and it, it's you know they sell the effect properly in this it just looks like a black sheet with a bunch of christmas lights you know very lazily spaced uh, pretty evenly um apart from each other and, and just very sloppy stuff like that but charming you know and and you know there's also parts in this where they've got those automated doors you know that as you walk up to them they slide open as they would on a spaceship that are clearly just being pulled by a, like a lazy stagehand who's like slightly, you know, outside of the frame of the camera because it's jerking along in, in a way that is, you know, not natural. 
certainly not computer controlled. But I like that stuff. You know, I, I like that kind of handmade, um, you know, um, gritty feel to a movie like this. And and you can feel the effort being put in. Like they are doing what seems like probably the best that they're capable of with the resources that they got. And they're trying to do a lot, you know, like um, when they first arrive at um, the, the hunting lodge, I guess you would call it. Um, there's all these heads of various beasts up on the walls and, and heads of, of humans as well that have, that have been hunted. And, and while none of them look especially impressive on their own, they did go to the trouble to make like a bunch of them. It's like a hundred of them or something. And I think that's kind of rad, you know, that they, you know, that they clearly cared about making an entertaining movie here. And, you know, whether or not it's, it's kind of stupid, I, I think is besides the point because you can still have fun with a dumb movie. And, and certainly I did here. Um, this Elizabeth Caton or Kaiton or, or however you say it, uh, she's an actress that I never really took a particular note of, you know, as a kid. But I think watching this, I, I feel like maybe she's kind of an underrated screen queen. I, I thought she was really good in this. And I really like that. Um, the extra small loincloth that they put on her, I, I thought, you know, was very uh, well selected. And, and uh, to be honest, I was kind of bummed out at that point where she arrives, you know, at the um, the, the fake Christian Bale's uh, hunting lodge. I, I guess we would call this guy. Dude looks a lot like Christian Bale in kind of a disturbing way. Um, <laughs> but when she arrives there, you know, his robot assistant is like, here's your clothing, young woman. And I was like, son of a bitch, she's going to get dressed? Because up, up until that part, you know, the underbutt factor was off the charts. Um, but thankfully, this movie knows what it's doing, and it's only got the, the ladies in clothing for probably about 60 seconds before they get disrobed again. You know, they're changing into these um, 90s to go to bed that will give you flashbacks to looking at the Sears lingerie section, uh, you know, in the Sears catalog as a kid. Um, so that's fun. And, and yeah, I mean, they, they know what they got here and they know what they're capable of. And I feel like they did everything they could to make this a fun time. And it seemed like they were having fun as well, you know, and, and, and that really, I think, translates uh, for you, the viewer, when you see these people who seem to be having fun making this thing, I, I think it's kind of infectious. Um, I didn't know that this would be a most dangerous game uh, kind of a plot line when I first turned this on, although it does become uh, obvious pretty quickly that it's heading in that direction. Um, but I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, I, I, I remember reading that story in school as a kid, you know, and, and, and I think also watching in school like an old movie version of it. And oh, surviving the game, not surviving the game, uh, some like black and white, you know, old ass version and loving it, you know, like having my mind blown as a kid, like, whoa, this this is pretty transgressive stuff. You know, it's like Battle Royale for for grandpas. And I can't imagine that kids these days are still learning about the most dangerous game in school. But I'm, I'm glad that I did. Uh, this is probably one of the silliest versions of that story to ever be made. But like I said, I, I think it's silly in the right ways. I, I think the over-the-top performance from the villain guy um, and the over-the-top jiggling of Lady Butts is exactly what you need to cover down on, you know, the silly-looking props and, you know, maybe less-than-stellar dialogue. Um, and for me, it, it all worked. I, I even liked uh, that weird giant spider web that's just cheap twine and plastic cling wrap wrapped around it. I thought that was... Uh, kind of charming. Um, I even like the part at the end where Bruce Willis says, Zed's dead, baby. 
which that does not happen in this movie, but the villain's name Zed. Um, yeah, this was the first movie that I watched on my new um, OLED TV. And I think breaking in that television with this array of long butts and loincloths was just what the doctor ordered. You know, it's it's kind of a movie that bumps right up against the edge of when low-budget movies started becoming too self-aware, you know? But I think this falls right on the, you know, the good side of that, you know? Like, they know... Um, they they know what schlocky elements to play up to cover for their inadequacies. And at the same time, they're, they're still trying to make a solid, solidly entertaining movie, you know, the best that they can without leaning into the lameness that I, I think some movies these days uh, tend to do. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really curious to find out what Kevin Moss thought of this, because if I remember correctly, Kevin Moss doesn't like Star Wars, but I think he does like, fake Star Wars movies, you know, like the black hole. So uh, what does a Kevin Moss think about these slave girls? <laughs> well, yeah, I had not seen this before, but I was very familiar with it because it does have one of the best poster slash video boxes of all time. I mean, you see this once and you automatically remember it. And it's not surprising because a lot of these movies back then for full moon and empire were, basically sold and funded based on the title and the poster alone they'd come up with the title they'd come up with a badass poster and they'd go we want to make this movie and they'd be like okay go for it here's the money and um yeah so this poster is has always been deeply burned into my soul and it's i mean it's just a great poster you've got the this monster carrying a naked lady then you've got one of the slave girls with a giant you know, laser gun, and it just, it looks awesome. It's a great poster. Um, but does it live up to the promise of that poster? Well, I guess it depends on how you look at it. I, you know, I, like you guys, I, I think for the most part, I like this movie. I like the, uh, I mean, obviously I like the ladies in it, although I did find it interesting. Our lead, Elizabeth Caton, was not always the lead. She was originally cast in, like, the second banana role, um, but the lead was supposed to be Ginger Lynn of pornography fame. Um, but when they, after a day or uh, three days of shooting, the director could not get any usable scenes with her because she was such a terrible actress that they had to scrap her and move Elizabeth Catane into the lead role. So there you have it. So this could have been a different movie. Could have had Ginger Lynn of things fame. <laughs> in the lead slave girl role. So that could have been interesting. But yeah, I mean, that is a very strange cast. Very strange cast. Um, but yeah, like you guys mentioned, I mean, this does, it, it's it's right in that middle ground in a lot of ways. Like one, it's in that middle ground right before Charles Band went to Full Moon. Well, you know, because there's obviously a decline between Empire and Full Moon. You know, the Empire stuff had some budget behind it. He it felt like it was kind of like living in the same universe as, you know, big budget stuff. It would get covered in, you know, Fangorian stuff. And then when it went over to Full Moon, it became a little trauma-y and straight-to-video-y. Um, but that being said, I mean, you know, there's still some good stuff on Full Moon, but this was kind of that, that middle ground. Also, like you said, middle ground budget wise, you know, I feel like while this wasn't a big budget movie by any means, it definitely had some money behind it. There was some cool practical effects. Uh, the, the aforementioned alien like predator 
basically a predator ripoff monster that that's in the woods is it looks pretty cool some of these robot guys look have some pretty cool effects and you know just the overall set um with this uh this dude zed's like like layer where he hangs out is uh pretty cool and it looks like there's a little bit of money and some actual you know design work that went into those um, and yeah, overall, I think this movie is fun. It knows what it is. It knows what it's trying to do, and it does it. Although, my biggest complaint with this is the whole most dangerous game aspect of it, because I don't know. I feel like that's pretty underutilized. Like half the time, you're like, "Is he hunting them or what? Like, what's going on? Like, they're just casually fucking in a bedroom. Like, are they being hunted or what's going on right now?" And you don't really feel that action of the chase, at least not for most of the time that it's supposed to be happening. You're like, what's going on here? Like, is, is there a chase going on or what? Because most of the action seems to be pretty slow moving and seems mostly based on just getting shots of these girls' butts. Um, so from an action standpoint, despite, like I said, the promise on the poster of big girls with big guns, fighting big monsters you don't get a ton of that it's more just a lot of uh you know kind of softcore porno style running around and skimpy outfits and having bad sex scenes kind of stuff so it, it to me it 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 kind of under delivered on that promise of the action everything else it did great like i said the girls look great the the practical effects look great the sets look great i just uh i don't know it just wasn't didn't have the action that it promised but i guess you can't really fault this budget of a movie for that i mean it's not you know although fuck that no you can because they can i mean action doesn't have to be expensive to be good they could they could have ramped things up a little bit uh you know i don't know i think you know a little explosions would have gone a long way a little bit more tense action chase stuff i think would have made this a better movie but as it stands it's still a fun one to watch it's one that you know if it comes on late at night on cable television definitely stick around and see where it goes or if you find a copy on dvd or vhs with that amazing cover art hell it's worth it alone just for the cover art pick it up but yeah it's a fun watch but not not an essential piece of the empire pictures slash full moon pictures catalog well fair enough we all agree it's fun, but not the best full moon movie. Um, but all right, cool. Yeah, it's fun. Uh, check it out if you like uh, looking at ladies in bikinis fighting monsters and stuff, which is uh, basically the best genre of movie there is. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we ourselves will be getting into loincloths and fighting monsters. So stick around. All right, well, that just about wraps up episode number 601 of Junk Food Dinner. I'd like to thank everybody for tuning in and listening. If you like the show and you wish you had more of it in your life, well, there's a couple ways that you can do that. One is by checking out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash dinner. Uh, for five bucks or more a month, you can get access to our monthly bonus episode, Junk Food Desserts. And not only do you get the newest episodes of Junk Food Desserts, you get access to the entire back catalog of all 50-plus back episodes of Junk Food Desserts. So you can jump right in and boom, for five bucks, you've got access to over 50 brand new episodes of Junk Food Dinner that you never had before. For $10 a month or more, you can become a Dom DeLuise Patreon donor and pick the movies that we do 
once a month on our Dom DeLuise Patreon Picks show. Uh, or if you don't necessarily have that kind of money to be spending, but you still want to use Patreon as a virtual tip jar just to say thank you for the hours of free entertainment, uh, stop on over and just pop a buck or two in the old tip jar over at Patreon. We certainly do appreciate it. Um, but if you want that always free, always there entertainment of Junk for Dinner, we do have, of course, a regular website, junkfordinner.com which has all of our previous 600 episodes easily chronicled for your listening pleasure. You can also get links to our social media, such as Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram, all that stuff. But really the main way that we're social media these days is on the discord. So find the junk for dinner, uh, group on discord, join it and come talk with us. Uh, or even better, let your voice be heard on the junk for dinner voicemail line, uh, by giving us a call at three, four, seven, seven, four, six junk. That's three, four, seven, 746-5865 and you will get your voice heard on the show and we'll respond. Tell you what you think. Might even write you on the boob scale. You never know. So uh, give us a call on the Junk Food Inner Voicemail line. Uh, in the meantime, next week should be a fun show. We once again are getting into some comfortable shorts. Uh, we're doing our short films once again on 602 and we're going to be taking a look at Tango from 1980. Dwarf on Golf from 1987 and Get Street Smart Colon A Kid's Guide Stranger Danger from 1995 so that should be a lot of fun make sure you tune in for that so until next time this is Kevin Moss for Parker Bowman and Sean Byron saying adios everybody we will see you next time this episode of Junk Food Dinner brought to you by Nike's Fuck Shoe the only shoe that fucks you so fuck you peekaboo you fuck you <laughs> All right. I'm glad we finally got sponsored. <laughs>